CID Speaker Series podcast. This week, David Pareja, CID Student Ambassador, will be interviewing Antoine van Achtmael, Senior Advisor at Foreign Policy Analytics and Principal Founder, CEO, and CIO of Emerging Markets Management Limited. Antoine just gave a talk at CID on his latest book entitled The Smartest Places on Earth, in which he describes how some rust-built cities are becoming the new global hubs of innovation and job creation. Thank you, Antoine, for uh, being here today and for giving us a few minutes of your time. So, Delighted to be back. Perfect. So for um, the people, I guess, who were not able to be at your talk, I, what I want to do here is kind of explore the thesis that you put forward in the smartest places of Earth, on Earth. In your book, you argue that this new wave of innovation and increased R&D in developed economies is allowing them to regain their competitiveness. And the competitiveness that came from cheap labor in emerging markets is diminishing. Right. Um, now, I want to explore a little bit more, like, what's behind that competitiveness? So what... So why does innovation and R&D matter from a competitive perspective? And if you could maybe make the connection between R&D and how that goes into the bottom line, does, that, does R&D help increase revenues? Does R&D help reduce costs for these companies? And how are they benefiting from that? Well, Paul Krugman once said that innovation may not be everything in economics, mm-hmm. but it's nearly everything. Okay. And, um, you know, for a country to grow, um, productivity needs to increase. And for that, you need innovation. Now, if you can bring that down to a company level or to the level of competitiveness, there are a number of factors that go into competitiveness. One is on the demand side. You know, are you in a place where there are a lot of consumers? Mm -hmm. Where there's a lot of demand. But if you look at the supply side, really it is a function of one, the cost of labor, mm-hmm. two, the cost of energy, mm-hmm. three, the cost of other inputs, and four, productivity and innovation. So it's always important. But there are times that one factor temporarily is in the ascendancy gained so much that the others become less important. Okay. So we had 20 years where basically cheap labor became so dominant that innovation mattered less. Mm-hmm. But now cheap labor is no longer so cheap. Energy is abundant and the US has a big advantage in it. Mm-hmm. And so when you see those other factors shift, then the innovation becomes more important. But on top of that, I think there was a period that people didn't pay enough attention to innovation. Companies didn't, the government didn't. And um, so we kind of hollowed ourselves out. But now we have discovered that that was a big mistake. Companies had, and I think the government understands. And so there's more emphasis on that And that has been helped by the fact that innovation now, and innovation goes through periods of of rapid growth and much less rapid growth. Because there was less emphasis on it, there was a period of less rapid growth. Now, 
people realized they had to do something. They had to be smart because competing on cheap didn't work. And so they focused on that. And now we're at the beginning of this huge cusp, I think, of of this huge wave of, of innovation because it brings together all of the things that we are really good at. Now, what, what, what that's going to make, though, is, so you're, you're saying that, is it going to lower cost or is it, uh, or is just productivity kind of the end goal here? Like, what, what does the productivity lead to? Is it more products, like better customized products? It, it's all of those things. Okay. Thanks to innovation, productivity will go up. And uh, that unfortunately means that sometimes jobs go down, <laughs> which is a problematical problem. But... It also means that you can be cost competitive again. If, if you can make things with a robot mm-hmm. as cheaply as you can make things with not so cheap labor mm-hmm. anymore, yeah. you become more competitive. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, you can customize. And number three, you can do something that nowadays people find more important than they maybe found 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, they like things that are made locally, local okay. for local. So it plays into that sentiment. It's not the dominant sentiment, but it's a, it's an additional uh, part of it. So given that developing countries were the ones who benefited uh, from the competitiveness of cheap labor, uh, this new wave mostly speaks bad news to them. Uh, or do you think that there's going to be... Uh, decreasing jobs even further in developing in developed economies well there was a period as an investment manager mm-hmm. i benefited from that period that emerging markets really had what you could call in sailing terms the wind in their sails mm-hmm. and now not all of the wind is in their sails and some of that wind is coming back here so i think it will create some issues. I think that the next rust belts mm-hmm. and the next big job losses are going to be in emerging markets right. rather than in in manufacturing, that is, mm-hmm. than in developed countries. And the fact that they don't have, in some cases, the freedom of thinking that makes true innovation possible means that they, at least temporarily, will have, will be behind. Uh, and they feel that at the moment. That doesn't mean that that will be forever, mm-hmm. but for a while, I think that will be the case. Okay. So that brings me to the other part of your thesis, which is that, um, so you believe that, so you used to believe that both uh, emerging markets had a competitive advantage in producing goods, and also they had the markets right. to buy those goods. And that I still believe. Correct. So you, and that's in fact growing, and it's growing faster than here. Correct. So my question then is, if we're going to see the growth in emerging markets slow down because competitiveness is shifting now towards developed economies. Uh, are in those markets or demand markets going to be hurt uh, in emerging economies? And are they going to be able to pay for the goods that developed economies are going to be able to continue producing? Um, first of all, they will be producing many of these. When I talk about local for local, mm-hmm. uh, that means also local in emerging markets. And... Uh, when I say that that it's the emerging consumer rather than the American consumer that is king, it means that local for local will be very often over there. But you're right that when it comes to 
exporting products, mm -hmm. it may be more difficult uh, because that part of the competitive advantage is getting less. So they'll have to compensate uh, for that, first of all, by building up their domestic demand, as China, for example, and many other countries are doing, and, and, and that will be good, but also by focusing more on innovation themselves. Uh, not just product innovation, but deeper innovation. Right. That has consequences for the political regime mm -hmm. because it requires a different kind of culture. It, it, it requires that you work together rather than do things yourself. And it requires that you're willing to be open to other ideas rather than having thought control. Mm -hmm. And uh, it requires that you work in a more collegial fashion rather than in a hierarchical fashion, as you often see in many emerging markets, in both companies and, and, and governments. Got it. So do you think, um, given that... I, I don't want to oversimplify this, but, but I'm just talking about a very general trend. So how aware do you think emerging markets are currently about this trend? I've been trying to <laughs> make them aware by speeches and by writing this book. And as I mentioned, it was interesting to see that the Chinese were the first ones to translate it. Yeah. And there's a big interest in it in China. There is a real emphasis now in China on technology, uh, on value added, on uh, innovation, on the knowledge economy. And that should help going forward, but you don't create these things overnight. You don't create a world-class university overnight, even though the Chinese and others are working very hard on doing that. You don't change a culture overnight, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and shouldn't start. You should work on it. I think they are. So to, to understand the, uh, the importance of, of this culture of innovation that, uh, that you're talking about, so the benefit or the competitiveness comes not just from coming up with these new technologies or these new processes, because those can be easily exported or copied. Right. You think that the benefit comes from having this platform that allows for constant improvements of processes right. and constantly right. new technologies. Right. Okay. Yes. yes. Um, innovation has, has different stages. The first stage is you know, the very basic research, the invention. Mm -hmm. And for that, you require kind of very idiosyncratic people um, that work together with others. But then the next step is that you have to take that great idea and make it into a product. And for that, you need basically universities and startups and then later legacy companies to work together. So that sharing of brain power, as I call it, is something that, that doesn't come natural, that has to be learned. And my belief is that in the United States, and to some extent in Europe, we have learned this a little faster and earlier than that has happened elsewhere. But I don't believe it's a monopoly. I don't think that we're naturally better at this. It's just that we had to. So this culture of innovation, um, uh, it is obviously ha it has a lot of implications given the increased automation that you talk about in your book in terms of all these... Uh, lower skilled jobs disappearing, not just as what we've seen in the in markets like the US, but also in emerging economies now. Right. Um, so what do you see as the new 
manufacturing jobs? What's what is the lowest skill jobs that you that you see in the future that people should be training for? Well, I think increasingly the low skill repetitive jobs of the past mm -hmm. that have low wages typically are going to give way to automation mm -hmm. everywhere. And so that type of job will be lost. So the question is, can you retool, can you retrain those people fast enough to move to the next stage? Uh, that's a problem here in, in the United States, but it's also a problem and will be a problem in, in many emerging markets, I think. And it's something that really needs attention. And, but, and what kind of training would that look like? Do you think it's is it a, a change in the type of subjects that people study at a college or is it a change in the way as you mentioned during the talk about how companies interact with potential hires it's both technical skills mm -hmm. and technical skills can be taught and learned everywhere correct yeah. and given the literacy and given the, the stem scores that many of these countries have uh, among the students there you would expect that not to be a problem what's more difficult is um, that in a high-tech economy, in advanced, in advanced manufacturing, you need this combination of technical skills, critical thinking, and managerial skills. So the future of education and training is going to have to be focused on each of those areas. And then on top of that, uh, when it comes to things like design, customer service, you have to go away from where they are often strong, which is on the STEM side, into something that encompasses something a little more mm -hmm. uh, that goes from STEM to STEAM, where, where you have essentially the, the creative part of the brain involved and merged with the other side of the brain. Okay. And to give people a sense of, uh, of where we are in this process of automation, I think one of the most interesting things that I glance at in your book was the fact that you already have seen factories where there are robots yeah. uh, working that are not just automated robots but are, are using machine learning to actually right. learn from what they do yeah. can so you the very beginning only okay can you, yeah so can you talk about more about how spread out that is yeah it's not very spread out yet in fact i think over the coming years the spread of the old-fashioned kind of robots that do things repetitively very fast, I think may well spread faster than I thought. And, and the second generation of robots, which is self-learning robots that are flexible, can do multiple tasks. Uh, it may take longer than I had expected. I think that uh, in Japan, in Germany, uh, and in the US, we're working on that. We think robotics, for example, here in, in Boston uh, is a leader in that area. But I'm not sure it has been quite as successful as they had hoped to be at this point. Okay. What, what is holding that from taking off? I think it is a combination of the software constraints as they exist now and the ability to link the capabilities of the machine to jobs in such a way that it works fast and, and, and on a cost-competitive basis, that's still a challenge. Okay. I, mean, it, 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 I would compare it a little bit to clean energy, where it takes time to develop until it comes to a point where really the crossover point is reached. 
we have reached a crossover point in, in second generation robots in theory, but in practice, I think there's still a lot to be done. But once that's reached, it will go very fast. That makes sense. And my last question, and uh, as an investment professional, this is something that, that I like to ask because I like it when people put their money yeah. with what they're saying. So, so where where are you investing these days? What uh, what investment themes do you like, and who do, who do you think are the companies or, or sectors that are going to benefit the most uh, from this trend that you describe? Yeah. In truth, uh, in the last couple of years, I have not been active mm-hmm. in investing, so. It's difficult to tell you, okay, these are the companies I would focus on now. Certainly, in in, in general terms, I like companies that are developing a record and have been actually embraced in in manufacturing, Mm -hmm. in the area of robotics and and drug research and and all those things. But you always have to realize that picking companies in these areas is difficult because Really, it's like restaurants. Uh, maybe one out of ten, maybe one out of twenty <laughs> is, is successful. So your chances of picking the wrong one are actually uh, quite high. Okay. Now, I would say that there are a couple of things, though, that you should keep in mind when you invest. First of all, it will be too easy to count out the old economies. They still have a lot of life mm-hmm. left in them. Second of all, look beyond Cambridge and Silicon Valley, whether it is already demonstrated success to these new Rust Belt cities, mm-hmm. which may be less fun to visit and less fun to live in, but that's where there are going to be a lot of opportunities, I think, over the coming years. What I've learned is that just as cheap labor was important in giving emerging markets a competitive edge, cheap housing is very important in giving cities mm-hmm. a competitive edge. And finally, look at these Rust Belt cities as as a potential investment opportunity. And on a light note, I would say, when you go to these places and figure out where are they getting their act together, where are they creating vibrancy, Mm -hmm. it's one of these things that you should watch. Vibrancy is critical to success of a city. And interestingly, part of the vibrancy is the high correlation to innovation is bicycle path. Thank you so much for this. This was uh, very interesting. Great. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.